we're in John chapter 14 once again, picking up in verse 22, in a series which I've entitled, Around Eight Messages Centered on the Holy Spirit out of the Gospel of John, Comfort During Trying Times. You know, the disciples facing the greatest upheaval in their lives to this point. Jesus Christ saying, I'm leaving, and you cannot come. For where I go, you can't follow. It's, an, it's a trying time. It's a time of upheaval. Things are not going as they had hoped or planned for. And it continues in our passage this morning. John 14, verse 22. Judas... Not Iscariot said to him, interesting, this is the only time that this Judas speaks. We don't know anything else about him much. But he asked a very profound question. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, the Father and the Son, will come and live or or make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, last week we said the Advocate, the Helper. I think we could also see, as one pastor said here, the Agent. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring you to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts fret and be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come again to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father's greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. We might say, He has no place which He can grab hold of me. He has places the ruler of this world does to grab hold of us. Cracks in our character. Sins which we commit. But Jesus Christ had no place which the devil might grab hold of in Him. He has no hold over me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus' promised Spirit 
fearful to peaceful. That's the title of the message this morning. Fearful to peaceful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we read these words, our hearts, if we're honest, still today are filled with fear. We have turned your law into a ladder by which we might climb over the wall of heaven and enter your presence. And we know because we cannot keep the law, we cannot climb the ladder. Therefore, we feel as if you have not accepted us. Others have gathered it here and their hearts fear as we read this passage. Because they have seen the law as a ladder. And because it is so steep and because it is so hard, they have refused to even try to climb. And so they went off into this world. Rejecting your presence. But God, we as your children have gathered. And the fear is gone. For we perceive that your law is not a place which we gather to climb, to ascend, to improve, to gain your favor. But rather, your law ushers us into the presence and the person of Jesus Christ, who has kept it perfectly on our behalf and has filled our hearts with peace. Send your Spirit that our hearts might be illumined, our eyes might be opened, our ears might be unplugged, our dead souls might be stirred to life, If you fail us here, it's all for naught. Our coming, our singing, our praying, our studying, our preparation, our thoughts, all are for naught if your Spirit does not come now. And so we beg you, send your Spirit. In a real way, open us to your words and teach us now. As we look at your holy word, which is the bread of life, make it real to us. Make it alive to us. Bring us, God, to understanding. It is in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, defines the role of the Holy Spirit In this way, the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world, and especially in the church. All of the great religions talk of a God who is present. But Christianity separates itself in that God Himself is active in our lives. He is not the great watchmaker who has created the world and stepped away as the deists see him. And he is not a god of pantheism as the Hinduists see him coming and living inside of all of creation 
which is then active, but God Himself, distinct from His creation, has entered His creation and is making Himself known to us. And the way He does that is through His Holy Spirit. And in the church, particularly, His Spirit reveals God's presence to us. Wayne Grudem goes on and further defines, better defines, the Spirit and His work by subdividing the work of the Spirit into four categories, which I want to give to you quickly. First, he says that the Spirit empowers for life and for service. He empowers for life in the creation. Genesis 1, verse 2. After saying in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible then, the Hebrew very clearly says, the breath of God, the Spirit of God, hovered over the face of the deep. And it is by that Spirit working through the person of Christ which God carried out His plan for creation. The power of the Spirit brought about all that we see and all that we cannot see. Not only is it creation which we see His power for giving life, but it's in our new Christian life which we see the power of the Spirit. John chapter 3. Jesus to Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Nicodemus, Jesus, how can an old man enter his mother's womb a second time? Jesus, you can't do it. The Spirit of God gives you birth. Literally, You're born from above. The Spirit moves like the wind. No one knows where it comes from or where it goes. But we know it's there. The Spirit, first of all, is powerful. He gives life. He gives service to us. Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, Go into all the creation, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We're very familiar with that statement, but if you write it down and go back and look this afternoon, he says something else that's very striking in verse 8. Go and wait on the Spirit, and when He comes, He will give you power to go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Could it be that we, in misunderstanding the Spirit of God, have begun to do the work of God, so to speak, in our own power and find it ineffective and unfulfilling? The role of the Spirit is to give us life in both creation and the new creation. The role of the Spirit is to carry out the service of God in us. Is it not that God said in Ephesians 2.10, That we've been saved by grace unto good works which God Himself prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. How do you walk in the works of God? Ephesians chapter 5 very clearly says, walk in the Spirit. It's Him who creates, gives life physically and spiritually. It's Him who gives us the ability to serve. The Holy Spirit does this. First, 
He empowers. Second, He lays the Spirit. He says the Spirit purifies us from sin. We don't become holy and then God loves us. God sends His Spirit to wake us from the dead and makes us holy even as we are sinners. It is the Spirit which has sealed us to the day of redemption. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 says. He's the guarantee of our future inheritance. We don't guarantee the inheritance through our good works. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. He empowers. He purifies. Third, we might say He reveals the presence of God. The presence of God, which we're going to talk about today in particular as we go through this sermon. It's, a, it's the Spirit of God which was present with the people as they left Egypt in the pillar of the cloud and the fire. It's the Spirit of God who, when they constructed the tabernacle, came down to anoint the Holy of Holies. It's the Spirit of God that, when the temple was erected, came and filled the most holy place. It's the Spirit of God who was withdrawn from Saul. And therefore, he lost his ability as a king. It was the Spirit of God who empowered the sinner David to carry out the role of that kingship so that we might see Christ in him. The Spirit's presence was not a new phenomenon as we saw last week. He had always been with God's people. We're going to see a new aspect of that presence in John 14. He's not only with us, He is in us. He empowers, He purifies, He makes God present with us. Finally, Grudem says the Spirit unifies all believers. He binds us together. It's one Spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one, baptism, one God and Father of us all. He brings unity. Philippians says, being in the same Spirit, we find agreement or unity with one another over these things. He unifies us, brings us together. And so as we move into the text, we need to remember that the Spirit is not some vague force. He's not some it. He is a He. The third person of the Trinity. The very presence of God with us. That idea of presence has been mentioned several times already. And so as we move into our text for the morning, that's a little systematic theology. I just kind of ran through some characteristics of the Spirit that are scattered throughout this. Now we want to get particular into our text. And as we do that, transition our minds into the text John wrote for us, I want to cause you to think a little with me. You know, Friday night we had storms in our area. I don't know about your house, but in my house, the lightning was flashing, the thunder was rolling, the rain was pouring. And maybe you don't have, but I have some young children in my home. Seven-year-old, four, two four-year-olds. And just as I'm putting them to bed, because God so plans these things, we haven't had a lightning storm like that in some time. My wife's out of town, you know, she's in the Ukraine, so now it's going to rain and thunder and lightning, and the kids don't want to go to bed, you know? They were all nervous, scared. You ever been there? The storm's raging physically or spiritually, and you're afraid. 
They were all a little nervous. My seven-year-old, because she's obedient, went to bed. My daddy said, go to bed. She went to bed. She was scared to death. She told me the next morning, she, every time it thundered, Daddy, I just grabbed the, just grabbed the covers. I was scared. But Noah, about 15 minutes of that, and he came bouncing out the door, jittery, fearful, scared. I was watching the preseason NFL game. But my son was scared. And because I was afraid he would tell his mom when she got home, I got up and I went upstairs. The lightning didn't stop. The thunder kept clapping. The rain was pounding. But with his dad laying in the bed, he slid under my arm and went to sleep. In our text, God says, His presence, His home is with us. And if you're His child, you've been in those anxious moments. Maybe even this morning, you're identifying with that very feeling of unsettled fear, fret, uncertainty, whatever it might be. And He's not watching an NFL preseason game. But in your mind, you think, He's busy. He I don't know if he wants to listen to me, but I'm scared. And finally your heart cries to him, and in prayer you call on him only to find he's right there. And we're in the nook of his arm, and the storm rages, and we drift into sleep. Not because the situations are easy, but because God is real and His presence and His home are with us. That's why we study about the Spirit of God. One of the reasons is because we are fearful and through His Spirit we move to peace. But unless we get the wrong idea, let's unpack the text because this peace is not a peace of this world. First of all, the Spirit brings peace through His presence. We see that in the very beginning of the text we read. 22, Judas, not Iscariot, is saying, Lord, how is it that You will manifest Yourself to us and not to the whole world? I mean, come on, Jesus. If we can see You, they can see You. You're not going to put on the invisible suit. You're not going to camouflage Yourself. Surely... How will you do this? Notice the focus here is of the physical presence of Jesus and how quickly Jesus turns from the physical to the spiritual. It's a human problem, isn't it? That we all think about physical things. We want physical assurances. We don't want to know that Jesus is with us. We want to see and touch Him. And yet He's driving us to the reality that it's better that His Spirit be here and He be with the Father. How is it? We're like Judas, aren't we? We identify with this question. How will you show yourself to us and not to the whole world? First of all, Christ 
is hidden from the world. He will be hidden from the world. Look what he says. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come and we will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, he says. He is hidden from the world, yet present with us. How can this be? Notice this this is a theme that he's carried from chapter 13, isn't it? With Peter, he says, I'm going and you cannot come. 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. How will he be present with us and we can see him, but the world can't see him? What I'm driving you to and what I think John's driving us to is that he will be spiritually present with us through his Holy Spirit. How will he be hidden from the world? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that he's hidden from the world because the gospel is foolishness to them. He's hidden from the world because unlike the powerful beings and kings of this world, Jesus Christ didn't rage war with an army and then sit on a throne physically, but rather he waged war with his own flesh. He took on himself our sin and died, God giving himself for his creation. Foolishness to the world. What Aaron described for you in the justice of God in our day is called cosmic child abuse by many who claim to be a Christian. They use those words. They rail and hate it. They rail against it and they hate it. Because it's foolishness to them. It makes no sense how God might die For his creation. And Jesus says, I'll be present with you, yet the world will never see me because it's foolishness. Because, as 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, the God of this age has blinded their eyes and they can't see him. The light of the gospel is shining, and yet this world cannot see it. He's present, but they don't perceive Him. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, it's not physical, but spiritually perceived. What I'm saying to you is the way Judas will see Jesus and the world will not is not with these eyes, but with the eyes of His heart, enlightened by the Spirit of God. The difference between you and that lost man in the pew next to you or woman next to you or your neighbor across the street is not that you are wise and they are foolish, but because, but the difference is that his spirit has come into you, waking your soul, giving life to your dead soul, shedding the darkness of your blind eyes and giving them light so that you might see Jesus. It's not you that has made you 
understand. It is God who has made you understand. Judas says, how will you make yourself appear to us and not to the whole world? Because I'm going to appear spiritually. My presence will be with you spiritually. It's spiritually discerned, Judas, not physically. Christ will be spiritually present with all believers. Look at verse 23. I'm coming, he says, or the Father and I will come and make our home with you. Do you see the connection clearly in the words of the Scripture between this statement and the statement earlier which we studied in verse 2 of chapter 14? Remember, Jesus prepared a place where we will all dwell with Him. And He did it by His work on the cross. But we're not simply waiting on that eternal home, the new heavens and the new earth. He lives with us today by His Spirit. He's come and taken residence with us. He is in us, not simply with us. He says, Jesus does, in answer to this question, how will you make yourselves appear to us and not to the world? I'm going to do it spiritually. I'm going to make my very home with you. Maybe this is a good place to say. The presence of God being with His people was not a novel concept. It was all through the Old Testament. What Jesus is teaching that differs slightly, expands our understanding, is that in the Old Covenant, He dwelt with us. In the New Covenant, He dwells in us. In us. And with us. In the Old Covenant, the Spirit still had to open the eyes of the blind to see the promise of Abraham being fulfilled in Christ. He still had to waken the dead soul. He still had to regenerate them, in other words. They could not be saved unless He did that work. But He did not live in them. Where did He live? They had a physical building, and inside the Holy of Holies, His presence dwelt with them. But Jesus, in John 4, said, the day is coming and it's here when you won't worship me in Jerusalem or on the mountain in Samaria, but you will worship me in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and truth. What I'm saying is in this new covenant, what we find is that God not only dwells with us, around us, but He dwells and lives in us. So let me ask this question with that point being made to emphasize the importance of what we're talking about this morning. How then can you say that you are saved and yet your life is unchanged? Nominal Christianity does not exist. If you sit in these pews this morning saying, I really don't see that big a difference between what I was before Christ came into my heart and now, then I just simply say, has He come into your heart? Don't mistake His presence around you in other people 
and in church services like this as His presence in you. That's a grave mistake. Discern through spiritual means whether He lives in you. Whether there has been a change. A real change. Saying that the Spirit of the Holy God comes in and does not renovate and change everything about us is unfathomable. It's deceptive. It's worldly philosophy. The change is in such a manner that it is unmistakable. Now, does that mean we're perfect, innocent of all sin from that point forward? No, because the old man still lives and wars against the Spirit. Maybe a better way to ask the question is, is there a war going on in you this morning? Over whether you will obey and love God or whether you will reject obedience and deny love for God. If there's no struggle, if there's no war, if life in your heart and mind is like the heart and mind of your neighbor who's outside of Christ, I'm asking you to rethink your relationship with Him. As pointedly as I can say it is this. He says, those who love me will obey my commandments because the Spirit of God will live in them. And so we look and take examination of our own hearts and our own lives, not looking so much at those around us to see if we're as good as they are, but rather looking to say, is there real life in me? Have I been changed? The unity of the Godhead is emphasized here for the disciples and for us. If you look at verse 24, he says, And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So in this one section of our passage, it says that the Father and the Son will live in us, and I'm saying it's by the Spirit. And everything that Jesus is saying is from the Father. God is not divided. He is united. And the unity is that it is in His very character, in His very being. When we have the Spirit, we have God the Father and God the Son. We don't get the Spirit and hope to see Jesus one day. We get the Spirit guaranteeing we will see Him because He already lives with us. The change in the new world is not that then Jesus will live with us. The change is He will physically live with us in the new world, in the age to come. If you don't live with Him now and He doesn't live with you now, you won't live with Him then. If there's no spiritual residing in you of His very Spirit, then don't expect to be in the new Jerusalem where God is their God and they are His people. The Spirit brings peace through His presence. Let's go a little further. The Spirit brings peace through understanding. When It's not a perfect example, but when I was there with Noah, I wasn't just with him, I was 
really with him, close by, right there, he felt a real peace. Just before he nodded off, he asked, Daddy, why does it lightning and thunder? Now, without getting too scientific with him, I very simply explained what's going on. He said, is the roof going to fall in? I said, not usually. Because I wouldn't want to lie to him. It might fall in. But he was seeking understanding. We physically, when we are afraid, want the presence of one stronger and wiser than us. And we want their wisdom. It's not much different than what goes on in the life of a spiritual man or woman. They want to know God is present with them and in them. And they want His wisdom. Look what He says. The Father, in verse 25 through 26, sends the Spirit through Christ. These things I've spoken to you while I'm with you, but the Helper, the Advocate, the Agent, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name. The Father sends the Spirit. And He comes in the name of Jesus. They're not praying in the name of Jesus any longer. Now Jesus is saying, I'm praying that the Father sends the Spirit. He sends Him, the Father sends Him, and He sends Him in the power and in the, in the name, in the character of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit, when He comes, will teach the disciples and us. Look at His role here. Last week we saw that when He came to live... He took orphans and made them sons. He gave them a place to belong. Here, he says, he will instruct, he will teach, he will guide them. And he guides us. Particularly, he guided the disciples. Secondarily, he guides us through the disciples. After his death, they weren't left to their own reconnaissance to figure out what had just happened on the cross and in the resurrection and ascension. The Spirit of God instructed them as to what had happened. Particularly, they wrote that down and now we are instructed through that spiritual character, person, and the Word of God. Primarily, this passage is speaking about the Spirit instructing the disciples, who then in turn, through their writings, have instructed us. Some have wrongly used this. Whole movements have used this text wrongly. The Quakers. The Quakers assemble and sit and no one teaches because the Spirit of God will come and then He will instruct someone to stand up and give a word because the Spirit teaches us. We need no other teacher. That's the wrong interpretation. It's the wrong wording or the wrong thought with the wording. Look what it says. The Father sends Him and He will instruct, He will teach, He will give understanding in all things and bring you to remembrance of all that I've said. We have here one of the greatest defenses for the inspiration and the expiration, the expiring of the Word of God into the mind and the hearts of the apostles as they wrote the New Testament. This is how we received our teaching through the Spirit. And the Spirit reminds the disciples of the teachings of Christ. It's a very specific thing which He reminds them of. It's not that He reminds them of every event, of every time that they sat around the fire and 
and live life together, but He reminds them specifically of what's necessary that they remember for our benefit. They got old and forgot things too, the apostles. But they never forgot the teachings of Christ. Why? Because the Spirit Himself instructed, taught, reminded them of all things which Jesus had taught. And so we have the Spirit bringing the presence of God and the understanding of God. And finally, we see in this text that the Spirit brings peace through assured hope in Christ. It's, it's difficult to say, and probably maybe not perfect to say, that per, certain parts of text really jump out and touch and minister. But this line, not that the others aren't sufficient and helpful, but this line, peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives peace do I give you peace. It just, even in the study, I wanted to get there. Let's get through the other stuff so I can get there. I want to know about that. Peace was like saying, a greeting or closing. In Jesus' day, they greeted and closed with peace. Be with you. But that's not the sense in which Jesus is giving them this peace. He's not saying a farewell. He's not greeting or closing. He's saying something much greater. For the background of what he means here, it's helpful that we look at Luke Chapter 2, verse 14. So if you'll hold your place in John 14 and look at Luke with me. It's so important that we grab hold of this. The angels said to the shepherds, Glory to God in the highest. And I know it's popular to read it, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. But that's not the most literal way to understand what they said. The angel said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Jesus said, peace be with you. My peace I leave with you. Jesus is not talking about a feeling. Jesus is not talking about an emotion of peace. Jesus is not talking about that type of peace which we often think of. Where where we look at our surroundings and we feel better about how things might end. Jesus is not speaking about that hopeful and wishful peace which the world thinks about. Jesus is saying, you are at peace with God. Maybe Paul's writing helps us understand. Hold your place in John 14 and go to Romans chapter 5. Because I really want this to sink in. Jesus is saying, peace be with you. What does he mean? 
verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Jesus is saying, you have peace with God. It's not the peace of this world, which is hopeful and wishful that things will work out. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's an objective fact. You were at war with God, and He was at war with you. And now, because of what I'm going to the cross to do, you now are at peace with God. The war was raging. Some of you right now are at war with God. And you're very, I can't look at you and see it, and you've put the good face on, you've dressed yourself and come to church, and you've put the smile on so we might see it. But in your heart, you are at war. You are in rebellion. You hate God. You hate the things of God. And may I tell you this, outside of Christ, a war you will get. A war you will get. And He will conquer. And He will crush. And He will judge everyone outside of Christ. Because none like the world who has a hopeful, wishful peace, they do not have the peace treaty. God is at war. And He will consume those outside of Christ. But Jesus said to His disciples and through them to us, you're at peace with God. I'm leaving the terms of peace with you. I've ratified, I will ratify the treaty with my own blood. I will seal the covenant I will make it a fact. You are now at peace with God. At one with God. You don't feel that so much as it's a truth which directs and guides you in this life. Because there's real pain and suffering in this life. Some of you are on the brink of giving up right now because you've lost everything. You've lost, some of you are either losing or have lost your jobs and you have no way to provide for yourself. Worse, some of you have lost wife and husband. You have no comfort, no family relationship. It's been destroyed. Some of you have lost your health. And focusing on all those things, you don't feel very peaceful. But Jesus is saying, My Spirit is in you. And because I'm in you, you have peace. Though the storm rages, the lightning flashes, the thunder claps, the world is falling apart and there is no answer 
and you feel as if God is unrelenting in the pressure which He is applying, in those moments the Spirit sweetly says, though the storm rages around you and against you, you have the victory. You have the treaty. You have the blood. You are at peace with God. And many times, can I say this? You have to choose between the feeling of peace, the emotion of peace, the giddiness of good times, and the real objective peace which you have with God. Sometimes choosing God means losing temporary peace in this world. That's what Jesus promised. He brought the sword and not peace. Sometimes you will seemingly lose everything. But in losing everything, you've gained Him. Peace I leave with you. Not the peace of this world do I give to you. But the peace which has been ratified in my blood, the covenant sealed, you are not at war with God. And so we have here a declaration of the man Jesus Christ that we are at peace. He gives us His Spirit. He not only has given us His Spirit for peace But look at verse 28. I'm going away and I will come to you. I'm going away by way of the cross and I will come to you by way of the Spirit, we might read it. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Whoa. In the middle of a text in which Jesus has claimed deity and joint character and being with the very God of the universe, he now says God's greater than I. What does he mean? I think it's clear that what he means is that in this life, the physical life, and in his death, he was subject to God. I didn't dream that up, but that's the only way to make sense of the whole Bible on this fact. Because the whole Bible says he's equal with God. Now he's saying I'm Less than God, it seems on the surface, but what we see when we dig in is Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Though being in the very form of God, he did not grasp hold of that, but rather humbled himself to come in the form of a man and to serve mankind by way of the cross. He didn't lose his godness. He subjected himself willingly to the, to the path of obedience in this life and death. For our sake, He has been made to know sin. Who knew no sin? And therefore reconcile us to God. Bring peace to us. Bring us to God, as Peter says. It's not that He's less than God. That's not what He's confessing. That would be in contradiction of everything He's taught. He's rather saying, The Father... I have submitted myself to the Father. And I have obeyed Him to the end. And I will die in obedience to Him and ratify that covenant which will be the peace between you and God. And rather than leave that 
murky and us hopeful, He sent the Spirit into us at conversion, at regeneration, so that we know it objectively. We know it factually. Finally, He says in this passage as we close that Christ obeyed the Father and He displayed love in doing this. He has said again and again here in verse 15, in verse 23, And now he says in verse 30 and 31 that it is love for the Father which shows that we are one with Him. It is obedience. It is loving obedience which separates us from the world. Now, how I just want to make one, how can we apply all this that we've learned this morning about the Spirit into our life? Make it make sense for us. Hopefully you believe it. How will we meet the rubber, meet the road Monday? Just one application if you would give it to me as we close. To the lost man or woman or child. Though right now your bank account is growing. Your job is secure. Your children are healthy. Your wife or husband loves you. Don't trust in the fleeting possessions of this world. Though you feel at peace and have an emotional feeling of everything is well, don't be deceived any longer. God is at war with you. Outside of Christ, He will consume you. He will judge you. So you're going to go back to work tomorrow, lost man, woman, child, school, wherever it is you're going. And you're going to say, man, Grace Fellowship is so heavy there. I feel, I feel so repressed. They talk so much about how bad we are. I think God's a good and loving God. I think He's merciful to us. And, and I'm not real worried about it. Look, He even blesses me. I'm driving a nice car. I've got a good job. I've got a great wife. My children love me. You have the peace of this world. And that peace will come to an end. It might come to an end in the fact that you lose that job you thought was so secure and your wife leaves you and your child dies. Or you might lose it in the fact that you have it your whole life. And you die exceedingly wealthy, having enjoyed this life to the fullest. And the moment you die, you stand in the presence of a king who comes not in peace, but in war. And in that moment you will say, 
all of those things I would trade to be at peace. And it will be too late. That's the application of this passage to you. Wake up. Be sure of this. God has sent a warning to us. He has crippled our economy and the economies of this world. He has sent disaster after disaster after disaster. War after war after war. And He is saying very patiently, the end is near. The end is near. And you scoff at that and you will wake up in His presence a king at war and He will consume you for all of eternity. Please wake up. To you saved children of God who are playing the role of a harlot because though you are His child at this season, in this moment, in this day, you just love this world a lot. You probably don't have a lot of peace. So there's no need to warn you because you already know this is dangerous territory. I'm, I'm outside the walls, the arm of His protection. And I'm saying, He's saying to you through His Word, I've left my peace with you. Come home. I want to live and dwell in, with, around you. Come home. What I'm saying to you is, believer who is trusting right now, currently, for the moment, in the things of this world, deny those things and take up even the cross of Christ. Stop, Christian, asking for peace in this world, the feeling, the emotion to satisfy you, and say, you, Christ, are my satisfaction. Let the world fall apart all around me. Stop asking for momentary peace and rest in eternal peace with God if He never lets up. I find it very hard to encourage any other way because I don't know how it applies worldwide, universally, for that child, that young child in the Sudan who has lost it all and now lives in a bare tent on the ground and is starving to death to say, oh, if you love God enough and pray hard enough, He'll give you outward peace. He may not. But what I can say to that child and to you is rest in eternal peace. God is now pleased with you. He will not consume you, though you are consumed by this world. He will raise you in the day of judgment to new and everlasting life. Rest in that peace, no matter the storm. And to you Christians who are resting in that eternal peace and the storm is out of control. I just want to say as your brother, even in the storm, He is God. Don't judge Him. Don't judge Him by human ways. You may be looking at the frowning face of providence, the clouds which we so much dread that burst just over our heads to bring us refreshment and peace. 
What am I saying? You're at the end of your rope. You're thinking, I can't go another day. I'm dying here. I need relief. No, you need Christ. Hold Him. Treasure Him. Love Him. Drink deeply from His well and you will be satisfied. And the storm may never stop. But His presence, His Spirit will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray together. God in heaven.